The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Okay. This would basically be a Ben monopod. Go, just start. You, just, you kick us off. Maueti mata ta ta That'll go down well with the, you know, disenfranchised 16 and 17 year olds. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> My name is Toby Manhai. This is Gone by Lunchtime. Kia ora, Anna Pauli Mather. Tēnā koe, kia ora, tēnā tātou. Um, and hello, Sarah, who is sitting in with us today, having won a. Uh, Charity auction for Upsides Down, which is a very cool charity. Mm. And um, kia ora Samuel, who is uh, a producer today. Kia ora. Kia ora members, spin-off members. Anybody else? Uh, uh, the Bad Boys of Brexit, haven't Aww. had a shout-out for a while. Anyone else we need to those guys. say hello to? Hey, uh, we have been nominated, and for very good reason, as you will agree based on this intro, for the mm. New Zealand Podcast Awards, which... Um, in the news and current affairs. Honestly, I can't think category. of anyone more deserving than us. Mm. It feels like an inspired mm. decision by the judges, and I'm, I feel certain that we're going to win. It is. If you were going to deliver a separate award for the thing with the most integrity in the world, it would be these podcast awards having nominated Super High Mana. You can also vote for yeah. listener's choice, I believe, online. I mean, you can edit this out, but it's a sham. Edit, let's edit it's that out. We can't have that. scam. We're not real awards. There are no real awards. They're all, none of them are real. It's like when Farrier did this, this piece on the, the New won. Zealand, uh, you know, LGBT awards. Like this is just this is just someone coming along and making up some awards and then making people come to a dinner and and trying to earn it by things like that's literally all awards that's what they are why are you giving me why are you looking at me like that I'm looking at What's you for sympathy eye? I'm trying to make what, what do you want me to do do you want me to make him do it again I don't know <laughs> do it again I just <laughs> I'm, I'm already writing my acceptance speech it's uh, this is probably our penultimate podcast for the year because it's nearly Christmas, which is good. There's a lot happened oh, in the God. last is fortnight in politics. I was scared to ask you when we we're going <laughs> to. Did you think this was going to be the last one? No, I was. I was h- hoping that we'd be coming to the end, like <laughs> <laughs> immediately or soon. But I was too shy to ask you okay. if it if it was penultimate. We will be doing daily podcasts all the way up to and including Christmas Day. <laughs> On all the very latest from the world of New Zealand politics, mm-hmm. it's been quite a busy fortnight, I think. Like it, it, it 
what do we have? Like boot camps has happened since our last podcast. They're back. So we will talk about that. We'll also talk about, we're going to have a constitutional corner with our leading public law, constitution, and uh, general public intellectual Ben Thomas, who's got many, many highbrow thoughts mm. on things to do with uh, voting age and entrenchment. Everybody is wrong. And we will also talk a bit about, maybe about Winston, but I think we should start talking about that Adrian Orr moment. I was thinking Ben Thomas. You remember how, whenever it was before the last election, you single-handedly, single-handedly appointed Aisha Viral to the cabinet. Literally did. It was foretold on Gone by Lunchtime. Mm. Do you think that now the National Party, who at this point are in the box seat to be the next government, should do similarly with Adrian Orr? Who is who delivered them the greatest Christmas Christmas present of all time? Until recently, National were were being mean to Adrian Orr at every opportunity, mean, and now he so pops mean. up, bumps up the uh, the base rate, record seventy five base point basis points. Not just that, people are expecting that. Then paints this picture of absolute abject gloom for election year twenty twenty three, recession. Maybe shallow, unemployment going up, sticky inflation, and also spikes the guns of Grant Robertson by saying you can't spend big in election year because that would be inflationary. Was that Henry Cook, who started a newsletter, said that this may have won Labour the election or something slightly hyperbolic? But it does does, does make it incredibly hard for the Labour Party from here. Well, yeah, I mean, we can step back from narratives for a bit and just say this is the economic situation and now both parties have got to deal with it. You know, we we, we shouldn't sort of get lost in the kind of stories that we tell ourselves about politics, you know, and and kind of um, find that we've merged with the armchair as quarterbacks and Mm. (laughs) find ourselves unable to look beyond the sort of optics. But, yeah, look, it, it... the, the cases that, you know, as I probably say, just play the footage of me saying that um, elections are basically a referendum about how, how good you feel about your own situation mm-hmm. and your own prospects for the future. Um, and that's the, the sort of these sort of conditions are really bad for any incumbent government. We've seen that around the world. Um, I... I, I don't I don't think it's the sort of slam dunk, you know, because, you know, there's two things. First of all, um, not all soothsaying is as accurate as my predictions of who will be shuttled into Cabinet True. as first-time MPs. Um, and the Reserve Bank has two tools that it can use to fight inflation. The first is cranking up the interest rates. Which means that people, as people's mortgages are refixed, they're paying more in their mortgages, more money's being taken out of the economy, less lending happens, so less economic activity happens, that dampens down demand, and so inflation hopefully comes down. The second tool that they have, uh, which also sort of is meant to take money out of the sort of the economy, is to scare the shit out of everyone by talking about how bad things are going to be so that people start squirreling away money in case they lose their jobs and they start paying down debt, putting money under the pillow, you know, guarding it with a shotgun in case they lose their jobs in the forthcoming economic crunch. So, you know, Adrian Orr's doing exactly what you have to do using both levers. It doesn't necessarily, you know, again, you don't want to get caught up in the narrative um, or, or get too meta about it, but that 
you know, he's, he's doing what's expected of him. Things won't necessarily be good, but then again, you know, it, it will depend on how the parties, um, you know, respond to this. The, the, the headwind is with the government. But at the same time, you know, we've seen Ardern and Robertson have been trying to pivot back towards this. Well, we're the steady hands in any kind of crisis. And there are some there's some worry there are some worrying signs for National. You know, we've I've, I've often said, you know, Luxon he's still in, only in his first term. Uh, you know, he's got a lot of learning to do. He's a fast learner. But this morning on RNZ, for instance, he was asked about the super age, and he was asked about you know what is the the what do you get as an individual on super, and after being pinned down and made to guess, he was out by about a hundred bucks a week. Um, the only number he could come off, up with off the top of his head was how much annual income would a superannuitant gain as a result of National's tax indexation policy. Uh-huh. And, you know, in a materialist election, right, one where people are really worried about, you know, groceries, filling up the car, making their mortgage payments, you actually do have to be in a position to account for every dollar. You, you know, we, we can sort of be dismissive of these kind of gotcha questions about how much does a lettuce cost at the supermarket? What are you paying for two litres of milk? But actually the politicians do on the campaign trail need to have an idea of the sort of lives that people are living mm. and, and, and what the impact of, say, an extra eight bucks a week or an extra 40 bucks a week or whatever they're promising is going to have on people. You know, and, and you know, this sort of, th- that lack of detail, which Luxon's been caught out on on policy a bunch of times now, um, you know, could actually be a real Achilles heel mm. um, during the campaign. Because, you know, part of what people want to hear, if they're doing it tough, is that you understand what they're going through and that you have a credible path to make things better. And, and not, and, and you know, being out by sort of a hundred bucks a week on your figures, you know, isn't a good way to mm. do that. It's so, so... Your advice to Labour is to go full. Show me the money in election election year, right? Like to 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 paint. They've already started a little bit with the inexperience. The other thing, Annabelle, is that and under the cover of the the Oars Day of Gloom, National killed the uh, removal of the top tax rate, which was going to happen. Most of us thought at some point, but they managed to kill their darling on, on just the right day under the cover of prudence and, you know, we're left with no option. How does it all look to you? Well, I think it was the perfect opportunity for them to do it. They had to get rid of it because you just couldn't justify massive tax cuts in an inflationary environment. So it's puts them in good stead heading into the election that they're not having to defend the indefensible. I mean, Luxon, again, I guess, is slightly vulnerable on the U-turn thing. And David Seymour had, I thought, a very good well, it's what, line about it's doing what happened to Ardern last time too, isn't it? Because she had to get yeah. rid of the capital tax. Yeah, and how many of those do you get before it starts to look a bit flaky, I guess? You know? uh, look, it's fine at this stage. People have got the summer to kind of forget about it. And, okay. you know, as, as Annabelle just said, you know, how many times did the Ardern Labour Party flip-flop on capital gains during an eight-week period in the... <laughs> In the 2017 mm. election, um, you've got leeway to do it, and now's the time to do it to clear the deck of any sort of really unpopular policy. Um, 
interesting that Luxon is sticking hard to the 67 superannuation yeah, that uh, was policy. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it seems like a proper principled position to take. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and overall, you know, when you look at the whole economy, absolutely right. But again, just this matter of tone, you know, I think he, he was asked, well, what about people whose bodies wear out, hard manual labour, mm. all the people that we rely on to mm. do the work for us, the professional management class um, and he said well you know if that happens there's disability allowances and I it's not really what you want to be saying yeah. you know you kind of want to say well, actually you know we recognize that you know people have to you know we, we of course we want to invest in ACC we don't want people's bodies to get to that sort of position you know that sort of thing um, so yeah it, it you know that there will be, you know, Bluxon said there'll be more policy coming out next year um, as they head towards the election. Um, you don't want any good policies this early on because the government will swipe them. Um, but yeah, just just a few things. You know, we, we sort of mock those sort of zeitgeist tapes, as they used to call them, in um, Tony Blair's government, you know, which is this idea that Tony Blair would get given a video that had sort of snippets of all the most popular TV shows and whatever was number one single of the week. Mm. And, and, and but there, there does seem to be this, I think, this need to get a kind of cheat sheet to Luxon. Mm. Um, you know, Key didn't have this problem. John Key was a, a numbers guy. He sort mm. of saw the whole world through numbers. That was his sort of reference point for everything. You know, he'd have the figures and then he sort of built built his sort of narratives around that. Uh, Luxon doesn't seem to have the same sort of brain. And, you know, it seems like they really just need to do some start doing some flashcards with them. This is what the average wage mm. earner takes home every week. This is what they're paying in tax. You know, and and get that sort of idea that, you know, he's actually sort of familiar with, mm. you know, what everyday people are going through because that sort of thing can undermine you when you're talking about structural and probably necessary changes like raising the super age. And, you know, and to, you know, because if, if you don't, if, if it doesn't seem like you're actually putting yourselves in the, yourself in the place of those people, you know, it, it can lack credibility. It's such a shit, unfair policy, particularly for Māori and Pacifica and people that, you know, work in hard manual labour jobs. And if you want to make the um, superannuation system more fairer or more sustainable, what about these people that are collecting it at 65 and still earning, like, huge salaries? Mm. Like, why not start there? Well, the means-testing super, yeah, that's a, that's that's another kind of bridge too far for, for everybody but it's a great point, it's very different when you're working in a factory and at the age of 65 doing manual work mm. <laughs> your whole life yeah. versus uh, living in Grey Lynn and you're, view and and you're often carrying at your desk and it's exactly yeah, and you're often carrying disabilities working. and stuff because you've been treated like shit by ACC and forced to go back to work too early and not given the same standard of care in the health system On the we know that Māori men are more likely to live with serious disabilities 10 years earlier than Pākehā men and we also know that that um, that poverty for, you know, the elderly is a real thing and often they're also bringing up mokopuna as well. So mm. just seems another grossly unfair idea. We actually, going way back in history, there did used to actually be sort of two superannuation ages in New Zealand. Um, 
you know, which was sort of, you know, kind of working man's end of life, sort of end of working life pension, and then a more universal one that kicked in for everyone at an, at a later age. Oh, um, didn't know can't remember the exact details. I read about it in a treasury paper, mm. but you know, maybe something, maybe something for somebody else to look up. It's an interesting <laughs> thing what you said though, Ben, about because on one hand. Luxon's narrative at the moment is strong and it works for him. You know, when I was a CEO, there would be crises that we would have to respond to. It's about being flexible and being able to change and identify risk and blah, blah, blah. And I think that probably resonates with people at the moment. But like you say, when you can't put a figure on, on an issue that you're talking about, it makes you look like a dance, like you don't understand what's really happening in people's lives and as you say it's something that's happened over and over I mean if you're doing an interview with Guyon, why on earth would you speak to him about superannuation and not know what the what superannuation is every week, like that's a hiding to nothing, it's Guyon. Yeah, and we're going into a calculator election. Everyone's going to be totaling up their <laughs> their weekly expenses, yeah, and, and what people are promising. And it's as you said, it is now accepted that it's going to be a crisis election. It, you know, Labor has very clearly determined that it is not in their interest any longer to try and do anything to suggest that there is anything but a crisis, and to lean into that and to say we have guided New Zealand through multiple crises. Here's another one, and we're the best mm. place to do it. And so, yeah, if they can, if they can paint Luxon, if Luxon, Luxon comes across as flaky, that's. I guess in their the thing is that that's the difference between being a CEO and a prime minister. Like when you're a CEO, you're just there to make money for your shareholders. When you're a prime minister, that's not what your job is. Your job is to take care of the most vulnerable people in our society, and that's where he comes unstuck. Yeah, corporate social responsibility. <laughs> with um, with National having ditched that, which they had to do, that part of their tax pa- package, the the top tax rate, the thirty nine cent. Oh, can I tell can I tell a story? Yeah, that's uh, a recession story. Yes. So, what, what, this is just about sort of seeming in touch. Like during so the, in touch. at the beginning of the last recession. Um, which was the you know spurred by the global financial crisis, although it actually hit New Zealand a little earlier than the rest of the world, 2008. Early adopters. This was when I was the the uh, grandly titled political editor of the National Business Review. Mana. Um, I was also no one ever calls you that. They, they call you a former junior reporter or something, right? You don't feel as though you're probably recognised for your senior role at the National Business Review? Uh, I've still got some really real nice American psycho kind of business cards, uh-huh. like very thick, very shiny. Okay. And uh, as, as sort of Lehman, Bro- Bear Stearns had already sort of collapsed and Lehman Brothers was coming down hmm. and sort of maybe about a week or two in, you know, this obviously when you're in business newspaper, this is like, you know, it's just constant activity, constant sort of freneticism. Oh, yeah. And we put the paper to bed. This was back when the National Business Review was a physical newspaper. So we put that to bed on the the Thursday evening. Then we were having drinks in the the boardroom. And the the owner of the NBR, Barry Coleman, Mm. was there and came over to me. And he he looked, you know, very sort of serious and concerned. And he said, you know, I don't think people realise, you know, just how bad this is going to get. You know, 
with the uncertainty in the national money markets, there's going to be a flight towards security. Money's going to pour out of particularly distant economies like New Zealand and back towards the United States. That's going to raise, uh, sorry, that's going to lower the New Zealand dollar, which means our purchasing power will be grossly eroded. So families, parents, individuals, the things that they're used to buying and the things that they rely on will suddenly be much, much more expensive. I don't know that anyone's ready for it. There's like, you know, at that point, the dollar was very, our dollar was very high. It was about US 80 cents or something. Mm. And he said, you know, if it crashes back down to 50 cents, that means that, you know, a new model Rolls-Royce Phantom goes from $1 million to 1.5. And that's just unaffordable for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> such a salient point. Eh? <clears throat> it's, a, it's, very, it's very important, you know. So, yeah, to empathise with the plight of yeah. the very everyday good. people, you yeah. know, during yeah. difficult economic circumstances. Mm. Um, hey, uh, something for us all to think about. Let's talk briefly about Winston Peters. I think, just in terms of kind of the calculus going towards an election, it for the first time. I think he ruled out, in an interview with Audrey Young of the New Zealand Herald, he ruled out uh, a, a governing arrangement with Labour. Um, interesting, you kind of, uh, to, 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 to make that call, like, what's, what's, what's the old fox up to? Yeah, so I mean, I don't believe him for a second, <laughs> but at the same time, it's incredibly interesting that he's done it because, yeah, like you say, it's the first time. He's always made hay out of, I keep the, I keep them honest, I'm the person who'll decide who the next government is. If you vote for me, you know, we'll install the government that helps you, the, you know, embittered New Zealand first voter. And uh, to cut off the option of Labour, I mean, one shows which way he thinks that the, the, mm. the polls are The wind are is blowing. But at the same time, really reduces his power. You know, if, if you're just seeing him, you know, he's really reducing it to the handbrake Reducing role. his leverage mm. in any... But is he... In, I mean, he must be calculating, surely, that there are sufficiently few votes to pick up from people who want <laughs> Labour government, and that he can... Is he looking at that act number and going, I want some of those? Is he looking at the general mix of smaller parties, or is he just trying to kind of carve off a bit of... I don't know, what is there, is there a... I think he's sort of pitching strategy? him... Uh, I think he sees himself as being able to pick up some of the voters who are leaning towards the right, but are a bit freaked out by how right it could go. Mm. Right, yeah, maybe like a he soft is. Right maybe voter. I mean, also, you know, we're, we're going to we're going to talk about boot camps in a second, but you know, maybe he is also feeling that general kind of malaise, the law and order issue, and that has been a, a very traditionally strong ground. I don't know if that necessarily how that how that meshes with uh, ruling out Labour, but you know, the chain people, the mood for change is in the air. Is that is that what it is? Y yes, and. He's made the mistake, of, you know, he, he already recognised when he chose Ardern in 2017 what he identified as his previous MMP mistake of propping up governments at the end of their lives. So in a way, he's just sort mm. of formalising, mm. um, you know, what he, the conclusion he had already come to in 2017. Mm. Um, because two times, Good you know, point. both with National and Labour, he's propped up governments in their third terms. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, both times it's led to New Zealand first falling under 5%. Um, 
Well, he propped up a government its first term in the same and, thing. And it's, same thing. <laughs> so, it's, actually just, it's actually just New Zealand first going into government tends to put, push badly. them under 5%. <laughs> Long exposure of the public to Winston Peters tends to push their vote under 5%. Um, what about the boot camps, Annabelle? The, if, we, if, if we consider the, the super superannuation age thing to be right or wrong, uh, an unpopular position to take, much easier to do the the thing that John Key did and that Jacinda Ardern has since done and just say, I will stake my reputation on never moving it. The boot camps thing seems like at the other end of the spectrum, it is so very clearly seems to be, uh, maybe, is it populist? It's certainly going for a headline in terms of, I mean, Luxon has even said himself, you know, the question where, you know, the, there's, there's the empirical evidence suggests they don't work. He says, well, something must be done. <laughs> and that's, no question, that's the mood, right? Like, something must be done. But how cynical is it to to create a boot camp policy? It's so cynical when we know that all the evidence about them shows that they're, they're not an effective tool in terms of preventing recidivism. Uh, how you can promote that policy... Um, with a straight face, but but the thing is that it those policies really appeal to a certain type of of voter. It makes them feel safe and comfortable, and and helps to you know soothe the resentment they feel towards these young hooligans that are ruining the country. But you know if you really want to address recidivism or youth crime or any of those things. But boot camps don't do it. They just teach kids to be more resentful of authority, more antisocial. Um, you have to go into the, you know, the the inner layers of what's really going on there and ad- address the social issues that are going on in their whānau. I don't see any reason why boot camps couldn't work in some form. So, you know, if you think about things like Outward Bound, um, you know, there's a lot of programs that are Voluntary. sort of, you know, take, yeah, take, take the kids back into the bush and, you know, learn the ways of their ancestors. There's, there's lots of great and programs like that, but the trick is that they're voluntary. They're not a form of punishment. Y- yeah, no. When but, you do and, boot camps for punishment as a punishment, then they don't work. Well, I... I, th- I think the, the issue. Then you're just to be hanging out with a whole lot of other angry kids <laughs> instead of like you know kids that are going out on a great adventure together and to reconnect with Papa Tuanuku and all of that stuff. You just bring a whole lot of fucked up, angry youths, or maybe not so fucked up, just maybe some kids that did some dumb shit on a Friday night, Mate, and you, you fucking know, lump them all like together, fifteen percent, scream of them at might them, love it, but. The, yeah, I mean, the, the, fifteen percent was the number who didn't <laughs> yeah, exactly. reaffirms right. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. The the but yeah, the, the formulation of them seems to be fairly obviously crafted for headlines. You know, you can see the work that Nicola Willis and Erica Stanford say have done behind the scenes to sort of say, look, we're going to have wraparound care. We you know we need you know full social services after they get out and that kind of thing. But yeah, this idea that you know you create this sort of walled society in Waiuru. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, patrol. I mean, our armed forces, like, we've, we've, there's apparently been, you know, quite a few resignations because of MIQ and how sort of, you know, belittled and bored our armed forces felt, you know, mm. being caretakers there. And to put them in charge is so troubled you. So, so is clearly just, it's the last thing they uh, to do. Yeah, I, I, I just, you know, what, what I, where I see this hat going is they'll do, you know, I think they said, what, 60 kids or something. They'll probably do basically a pilot of it with, you know, maybe a dozen kids. And I yeah. think that's probably the last we'll ever hear of it. We just can't use our kids as political fodder like this. Uh, you, you, ru- you ruin people's lives. I mean, we're still unpicking all of the shit that we created when we rounded up, like, what was it, 150,000 kids and dumped them into state care. And at the same time, people are wringing their hands over gangs and shit. Like, how do you think that stuff started? That is the fucker-papa of it. So how about, like, creating some programs that are, like, you know, evidence-based, that are restorative, instead of just going for headlines and ruining people's lives, and then in 20 years' time you'll be bitching about whatever types of crime are in fashion then. And, and that's going to be, I think that's going to be the reconciliation is because boot camps, are, you know, as, as they've been talked about, are so far outside the framework of the social investment model mm. that Nicola Willis is obviously, you know, championing and that Luxon himself says he's a huge fan of that, you know, they're, they're, you know, if we ever see a boot camp, you know, it's going to be very limited and it'll probably disappear down the memory hole pretty fast. The thing is that, like, just them being referred to as boot camps. Like there's all sorts of uh, amazing programs that happen all around the country. Bros for Change, where they do all of that stuff that you just said, but when you force it on kids and it's used as punishment, it doesn't work. There is, as we've seen with the uh, sh- the, the stabbing at the Rose Cottage Dairy in Sandringham, the demonstration outside the Prime Minister's constituency office on Monday, Boot camps uh, may not be the answer, but they are a response to a sense of impunity, uh, an issue around whether it's whether, whether it's ram raids or, a, or 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 general kind of mood of crime. And the you know some of the numbers vary, but it's clearly a, a real thing in the air. Is it going to be a law and order uh, election? You would think that, I mean, you would hope that ram raids will have subsided. Um, they in, seem to have. In, 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 yeah, they seem to have slowed down because the, the other thing is that, you know, it, it appears that most ram raiders get apprehended, right? <laughs> so even with the sort of the, the supposed sense of impunity and, you know, the government says that there's about 70 hardcore kids that they've identified yeah. and about half of them are now back in you know, education or training or whatever um, because of their, their wraparound care, etc., um, it, it does seem that you're, you know, it's, it's diminishing numbers, you know, and so, so even if this, you know, you, you would expect that there is not the same sort of epidemic in terms of violence against retail workers. That's not actually such a new phenomenon. That's one that's been going on for a long time. Um, Act, you know, for whatever reasons, but I think it's probably true. Have linked it to increased cigarette prices. I mean, you know, as, as soon as you have something that's worth 40 bucks, you know, <laughs> you can <laughs> you can fill a sack with, you know, in, in dairies, suddenly 
yeah, people by themselves at eight o'clock at night will become targets. And, you know, this was happening um, even under the previous government, you know, 2017, I think probably when they hit, hit about, um, when they had about 30 bucks a pack, I think, it became, it started to become a real issue in terms of armed robberies um, of dairies. And, you know, the, the government would probably say, help is at hand, we're introducing legislation to reduce the number of outlets that can sell tobacco by 90%. <laughs> Um, but I, I mean, I don't know, you know, whether that just becomes some kind of, you know, almost farcical kind of Simpsons-like situation where, you know, you have the one convenience store that sells cigarettes and it gets held up three times a night, you know? Mm. like Yeah, in terms of the Ram Roads, eh, it's... The, the thing about them is, like, we love them. In the media, we love them because it's, like, great pictures and... You know, the easy gets, you pull the CTV footage, you can write a racked up headline and people watch. And so they, on one hand, they become, what's the word like? Is it self-perpetuating? Like, kids see it and then they do it too. But after a while, like COVID, you know, people get bored of it and they don't want to read about it anymore. So I think eventually, you know, it is going to slow down. And it's kind of hard case how, like, not to pick on Christopher Luxon, but that he know he knows that there's a ram raid every 15 hours. Don't know where he gets that number from, but he doesn't know what a single person receives in superannuation a week. In terms of the dairy guy, you know, like you say, Ben, those um, that's not a new phenomenon either. Remember that poor guy out in Henderson that got stabbed by the, uh, killed by the 13-year-olds. I think that was in 2013. They are quite rare events, um, but they're really disturbing when they do happen. But I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves about, you know, whether or not this is going to be a an election about crime and punishment or whatever, you know, the massive issue that we have happening in this country is domestic violence. There's an absolute epidemic of domestic violence going on. No one's demanding that Jacinda goes and sits with the family of, you know, whoever our latest domestic violence victim is. No one's going to lay flowers at their door and have photo opportunities. No one's protesting outside, you know, or in the community where those things are happening. But those are the situations that are giving rise, those are the environments that create these rangatahi that feel disenfranchised and who go out and commit um, crimes or go on to um, commit more more sort of serious acts of violence and stuff. So, Yeah, and for, I mean, there was a, I think uh, News Hub had a scoop a couple of weeks ago that the funding that had been allocated for to provide, I think, funding for about 800 um experts to give evidence in strangulation cases. Now that strangulation is a, mm. um, a defined offence by itself because it's a predictor of um, basically fatal mm. domestic violence. Yeah. If you've been strangled by your partner, you have a way higher chance that they'll murder you. Yeah, and the funding, the funding has been used to fund more experts testifying for defendants than victims. Mm. Um, and no one in the Ministry of Justice can seem seemingly can explain why that is, um, and you know that's that was another just sort of you know shot across the bow at you know at, at the sort of failure to deliver, you know that seems to have marked a lot of po- you know very well meaning policies, mm. um, you know by this government. Um, 
And, you know, look, Chrome is a perennial. If, if, if it's not any of those things, and look, you know, unfortunately we'd be lucky if domestic violence did actually become a, a headline, you know, election exactly. topic. It, it won't. Mm. Uh, it never does. Um, but, you know, it'll be something like gangs. You know, pr- remember it was only the beginning of the year when people were talking about um, shootouts in East Auckland. So um, the more insecure and the worse people feel about their lives, the more they'll worry about mm. crime, the more they'll worry about pretty much everything. Let's, uh, I mean, the other issue that everyone's talking about is con- constitutional crises and issues around, you know, no, no, you can't shut the people up down around the water coolers of the country. You've been a particularly excised. Um, we're going to, I think the, the, the 16 voting age you're most, most excised about, but let's, let's talk about this entrenchment uh, subplot that roared up in the, in the last week or so, the essence of which is that in the Three Waters le- legislation, the Greens, Eugenie Sage lodged a supplementary order paper when, as the bill was going through under urgency last week, uh, which would require a 60% uh, majority in Parliament should any future uh House of Representatives wish to privatise water. Is that is that roughly roughly right? No, no, no. Because I think the 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 water services entity bill set up these f- will set up these four entities entities to deliver water services. You know, which are the three waters: you know, reticulated potable water, sewage, and stormwater services. As you know, to to do that, they 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 will they are having transferred to them all of these assets from council. When we say assets, we mean physical things rather than things that generate revenue because they're all creaky and old and need replacement. But pipes, desalination plants, waste treatment plants, uh, sewer grates, manhole covers—you know, exciting assets like that. Under the legislation, those those entities are not you know are not allowed to sell the assets mm. um, and they're not allowed to lose control of um, water service delivery and one of the ways you can do that is either by putting a mortgage you know borrowing so heavily against the assets that they can be repossessed somehow or entering into long-term agreements say like 30 years to um, you know to with say a foreign company to to run the assets the effect of, so it's not about privatizing water right which would be a totally different matter it's about pri- it's, it's about selling off it's about selling it's off stuff. or otherwise losing these c- control of pipes the water infrastructure plants, mm. yeah and and it, and it's a direct and and that clause specifies that the entities can't do that so the board can't get together and decide we're going to sell yeah them, right what this what the greens sop did was say that that clause which prevented the entities from doing that had, would be was entrenched and required a sixty percent majority to repeal the clause. Yeah, that part of that part of the, of the act. Yeah. yeah, right. And that typically, that the the idea of a supermajority, which in other examples is a seventy five percent, b relates to particular constitutional things like the voting age, well, like reality, the term reality, of parliament, both, yeah. and c has a has a bipartisan the two yep. major parties have have entrenched it on the basis that it's considered sufficiently 
important not to be able to at the whim. Also, these are all subject, as, as best I understand, to, to standing orders, which could be overturned by a simple majority. So, but, but the, the, the there's a lot of nerdy arguments about whether become, entrenchment they works. Become conventions. But, and, yeah, and this yeah. one, which is a weird one, is turns out uh, Joe Moyer reported for Newsroom this week that it was Andrew Geddes, I think, was floating yeah. the thought in the way that public law experts like to do. Hypothetically, <laughs> he absolutely was not advocating it because he then he then picked up on it and was and, and, and said this is extremely weird and unusual and probably not a good idea. Which everyone seems to agree. Well, apart, apart, from, apart from the, the Green Party now, the, the Prime Minister was clearly blindsided by it. Uh, the Leader of the House, Chris Hipkins, didn't know about it. Labour still voted for it, and now they're going to try and reverse it. So all's well that ends well. I mean, one of one of the most interesting parts of it is that it just sort of it just got voted on seemingly without anyone realizing what they were voting on. Yes. I mean, it was it was sufficiently at serious. At nine o'clock at night or something. Yeah, yeah and, and, and so it went through under urgency. Yeah. So this was a point at which everyone who had been in the house had been there till midnight the previous night. Yeah. And then they'd started at, I think, nine in the morning, and they had been debating this bill all the way through. And, yeah, it just seems like it was a fog of war situation. And so what, you know, this clause which uh, would totally upend our understanding of how kind of constitutional entrenchment works and, and the way that parliament can pass laws and bind future parliaments, it just sort of got voted on routinely, you know, in the same way as all the other sort of SOPs and motions that were going through the House. And it's important to point out that this reason that it's 60% is because that's what 60% is what Labour and the Greens the have Green between tank, them. Yes. And it, the... I don't know what you think about it, Annabelle, but um, I mean, the, I guess the, the general point that's been made is that irrespective of what one feels about the importance of uh, keeping in public hands this water infrastructure, mm. the, it does create a slight, a, 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 a very worrying precedent whereby every government could then entrench every single thing they do mm. according to the level of majority they have. You know, yeah. it's right, that so you open the, open the floodgates. And then, you know, Winston Peters could say, I want... What my condition of supporting your government is that every piece of legislation is entrenched insofar as it has to have Winston Peters' support or it cannot be repealed <laughs> all future governments. What do you reckon? It, well, yeah, it's like, does it make a huge difference to this particular piece of legislation? Can it be easily undone? Yeah, but, but yeah, you're right. It means, like, do we then start entrenching boot camps and mm. superannuation ages and all of that? So I think it's... Probably one of those examples of, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intention. And there, there was the argument that as constitutions evolve, people are more interested in protecting the right of people to fresh water and things like that, um, which I think in, in New Zealand, if you tried to codify that, you would actually create more problems um, in terms of what, it, what are the obligations and what are the duties, and you'd have to be a lot more stringent on it than saying whatever is the case now is what everyone's human rights are. You know, so the human rights of somebody who lives in a far-flung place in the South Island on a marae is that they get whatever water they can dig up from the ground and the human rights of anyone who lives in Christchurch is to have tap water for free as much as they want, you know. Because, you know, one of the interesting things is that irrespective of ownership, one of the key reform that the Three Waters uh, legislation will allow is actually metering of water, you know, which is a market mechanism that doesn't... De depend on ownership, but every time it's floated in local government, people do start 
a hue and cry and say water should be free and you know you can't charge for water it's human right and stuff but when you don't meet a water what that means is that nobody's tracking where it's going mm. nobody notices if their their bill has gone up by 100 percent over mm. the last month mm. nobody tracks leaks and that's how we lose i think it's it's, it's between a quarter and a half of all <laughs> fresh water in new and zealand it's, it's why is auckland has been doing it quite well for some time because they introduced yep. metering early on yeah that's right but, um the as far as it impacts the government is this i mean is it a kind of 72 hour wonder we're never going to talk no about one it again? fucking cares outside twitter and public law sadly but just devil's advocate on that i mean yes true but at the same time if you think back to the gst uh, on kiwi saver fees thing which was another 72 hour wonder right mm. where where two things i guess one is how is it that these things get through without being proper interrogated. Yes, it's a detail, but there are there are, you know there are quite a few staffers floating around. There are lots of comms people, that's for sure. How, is is that is that a problem in that it suggests that there isn't sufficient kind of I guess internal scrutiny being applied? And the second thing is, does it limit Labor's ability should they wish to jettison something from their current kind of legislative burden in terms of? When you do, I mean, you said Ben that you get a fresh start on new turns in the new year, but you know that that it starts looking bad for them in terms of having to backtrack on stuff. No, in, in terms of being a seventy-two hour wonder, I think the the GST fee uh, for Kiwi Savers, that or GST on Kiwi Saver fees. Yeah, that had headlines sort of mm. saying $70 billion or whatever it was, $100 billion. That gets people's attention. An, an ac accidental entrenchment of clause 211, I think, or 116 or whatever, of the Water Services Entity Bill. People don't know what it means. No one's listening to this podcast I mean, anymore. The, 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 worst, the worst thing for Labour out of it is that it kept three waters in the headlines for another two days, yeah. and it reminded people it existed, mm. and they're going to have to bring it back for some remedial work, yeah. whereas I think they would have liked last Thursday when, it, when they got through committee of the whole house to have done a cursory third reading in yeah. December, and they've just shut up shop about it forever. Yeah. Never speak about it again. And about the Supreme Court uh, ruled, what was it, probably a couple of weeks now? I mean, it must have been just over a week ago, the, the, the Make It 16 campaign, who are uh, advocating for the voting age to be reduced to 16. Mm. They took a case to the Supreme Court, and I'm probably going to misrepresent this, but I'll do my best, essentially, that the, limit, the, the 18 age was not, uh, justified under the Bill of Rights Act, the government sort of went, we can't be asked putting up an argument that it is. Again, I'm sure that I'll get edgelet on this, but basically it was a victory for the Make It 16. They weren't saying thou shalt reduce the voting age to 16. Mm. But what's your, what's your view of all that and I guess on the general principle of the voting age? Uh, I support um, Make It 16 just because it annoys Ben yep, so much. Yep, yep. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. But also I think, you know, <laughs> if our, our, our rangatahi are paying taxes and old enough to get tried as an adult and all of those things, they mm. should get to have a say on on um, on who runs our country and shapes their future. And so I think it's a good thing. do you think Ben is so fixated on disenfranchising 
people who are age 16. I think they make him feel old and yes. uncool. Yes, I think that's And he likes to is. be the smart, young, political yes, that's right. whippersnapper. They're, they're up in his grill. They're up in his grill. And some of them are quite smart, aren't they? Yeah, they yeah. run rings around him yeah. and it's hooty boonies What do you think, heart. Ben? What do you think? I don't care about the voting age. Oh. Like, I, I do... There's something you don't care about. You spend an awful long lot of time talking about you it. Do. No, I'm talk- you do. No, I've been talking about the Supreme Court's decision, right? Which oh. is the... Oh, so different. Oh, right, different. Thing. Yeah, oh whole other God. thing. Oh, this is the. This is why we're making no fucking progress here. Is because people can't disentangle <laughs> the formal issues with the Supreme Court's reasoning mm. and the way, like, the courts over the last decade in particular have been forcing their way more and more into policy and lawmaking under the sort of fig leaf of the Bill of Rights Act, which you know has this has this passage in it that says, you know, uh, any limitations, you know, on the Bill of Rights, on the rights in the Bill of Rights Act can only be reasonable ones that, uh, you know, can be justifiable or demonstrably justified yeah. in a free and democratic society. And the court uses this in order to fucking poke its nose into mm. every funding decision, every executive decision, and now every law that is passed by the other, you know, or that is made by the other branches of government that it's got no business doing. The, jo- the court's job is to interpret and apply the law uh, rather than like second guess it, judge it, measure it, assess it. Courts, the, the, you said the government couldn't be asked, you know, justifying the 18 year old voting age. Sounds like they didn't well, what, make the case. No, what the government said was that 18 was a reasonable age. To fix the voting age at. It was one of any number of reasonable ages. Mm. Now, the courts actually agreed with that, right? They said they didn't, but they did. They said, you know, there's nothing, there's no way of looking at a 16 year old or a 17 year old or an 18 year old cells under a microscope. They didn't say that, I said that. And discerning that they're different people <laughs> who are, are better qualified to vote than each other, you know, you've got to draw the line. It's a line drawing exercise, you've got mm. to draw it somewhere. Mm. And so, you know, the government says, yeah, that's right, and we drew it at eighteen, and that's a reasonable age. Oh and and every God, everywhere of many other places in the world have it at eighteen. Cares, honestly, like look, but my view, who cares about the court? And because court? it matters. Listen, because listen, you can't. My because view on as this, soon as no, as soon as you have people were really fucking worried about Christopher Luxon somehow introducing, you know, restricting the right to abortion in New Zealand after that Roe versus Wade decision. Oh what they shouldn't have been worried gosh. about abortion in New Zealand. They should have been worried about the nefarious influence of the courts, which is actually the American oh. fucking Listen, strain. Ben, ben, which is ben, taking, just take a step not. back. The Think Supreme of it Court like, is nothing like the Supreme Court in, in the US. Well, no, but it's been trending more and more towards it. They didn't used to declare laws inconsistent with the Bill of Rights. Listen here. They didn't used to make decisions. They didn't. This is just like parenting. Let's just think of this issue like parenting. Like, if you fucking nag me for long enough for something, you can have it. I don't care. And yeah, that's no, what they've done. Just, they've done an incredibly nagging campaign. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Have like the if, vote. If Parliament decides that the voting age should be you know, 16, and it can. that's fine. And, and Parliament yeah. is sovereign. Do you. I mean, I, I don't think the Supreme Court is testing the essential premise that Parliament is sovereign, is it? 
Isn't it useful no, as no, well? No, this is a point when you've got a unicameral system. We don't have an upper house. We have a. It's, it's like you know what, what, what was it? Jeffrey Power said the fastest lawmakers in the in, mm-hmm. the, in the world or yep. whatever. You know, there's relatively few layers of scrutiny, accountability. Mm-hmm. Isn't it quite useful to have a judiciary that performs a function where it does examine whether or not. Uh, whether or not the laws of the land are consistent very with helpful for the Maori, Bill of Rights Act. that's for sure. Isn't that a, isn't it? And then Parliament can go f- yeah, do what yeah, it likes. Yeah and, so right? the, yeah, and so the question is, how should the courts be deciding that? Should they be deciding it by looking at, is this conclusion that Parliament has come to reasonable? One of any number of reasonable options mm. is it, or you know, let's say twenty-eight is unreasonable, right? We can say there's no, you know, fixing the minimum age for voting at twenty-eight. That's unreasonable, right? Eighteen, mm. probably reasonable. You know, mm. everyone else does it. Mm. You know, it doesn't. You know, you got to draw the line somewhere. But what the courts say is, you have to justify why that age above any other is justified, right? Like you've you've got to prove why eighteen is the best age, even though we've we've admitted in our own comments that it's not. There's no there's no best age, you know. It's putting Parliament yeah. to a proof that yeah. the judges themselves can't meet, yeah. and yet at the same time they're perfectly willing to substitute their judgment for what is the right policy position in in cases of funding or uh, entitlements that government makes, you know, outside of parliament. They substitute the judicial branch's judgment and the judicial branch is the least representative, most out of touch, least accountable branch of government. You can't fire judges. They have the least representation of women, Māori, Pacifica, any, every other ethnic minority. No 16 year olds involved. No Year-olds drawn exclusively from the ranks of practicing lawyers. If they meet working-class people, it's only when they're doing renos on the fucking Northern Club. <laughs> and and for some reason, we feel comfortable having these people substitute their judgment for our elected officials. And, and, the, and it's insane that people are just going along with us. And the real-world effect of it, though, is under sort of the new rules that that that. That Parliament has established, they will have a have a debate about it in Parliament, and then the electoral reform panel that's already underway will go about their business and make a recommendation or not, one way or the other, and everything will carry on. Well, it seems that the local government voting age will be lowered. Could could well be, which again, fine, and that's fine. But and that's, if that's a debate, yeah, but but that should that the impetus for that should come from people, not from the courts. <coughs> it shouldn't be the courts have said it, and thus Parliament needs to do it if it can. But that's, hasn't that's it come from the people because the people took it to the court in the first place? Well, if if your conception of the popular will is who can afford a QC or have a QC donate time to them to take a case through to the Supreme Court, then that's a pretty interesting conception of participatory democracy. And it's one that all of the public law experts approve of because they're public law experts and they think that people drawn from their caste are better at deciding things than the people in general, right? This is all a discussion about elite that's clothed as holding the government to account when it's not. It's actually removing accountability to unelected lawyers. So do you think the voting age should be lowered to 16? <laughs> I think just to punish the little shits. Only, 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 only lower it for, only lower it for, for local, local government and then, and then for their civics classes. Maybe like not- hold mayoral debates in the school hall yeah. with compulsory attendance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Well, I feel like we've solved that. Um, I think 16-year-olds should be able to vote because I think that the basis of universal suffrage 
should be everyone gets to vote unless you can create a really strong argument why they shouldn't. Mm. And I can't see a really strong argument why 16-year-olds shouldn't. And I'm sick of this argument that gets used all the time, which is, well, have you met my 16-year-old is just on fucking TikTok? It's like, so's my uncle. You know, like the idea that just because you know some 16-year-olds who are a bit thick or indifferent or lazy, like that's a pretty weird basis on which to withhold franchise from anyone. I agree. I know some 16-year-olds that are like super smart and well-informed and all of those things, and then I know some 70-year-olds who are fuckwits. Yeah. That's the so. other thing. All Everyone over the age of 70, especially members of the judiciary. Uh, thanks very much for listening to our podcast, Gone By Lunchtime. Vote for us in the podcast awards, please. Kia ora e te iwi. Te ai he here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.